Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Mario Terrian speaks with Leda Braga. Mario is a two-time past guest on the show and is the head of investment funds and external management at Case Depot in Quebec, or CDPQ. CDPQ oversees $300 billion for pension funds in the province of Quebec. 
Leda Braga is the founder and CEO of Systematica Investments, a $10 billion hedge fund with a quantitative and systematic approach. Leda founded Systematica in 2015 after a decade of experience managing assets with her team in the same strategy at Bluecrest Capital. Before they get going, Mario and I discuss the key factors in selecting a Systematic manager and the role of Systematica in CDPQ's portfolio. I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Mario, great to see you. Good to see you, Ted, as always. I just want to get a little intro here for your conversation with Leda. And why don't we start with how long have you known her? I've known Leda for close to 20 years now. It goes way back to 2003, 2004, when she first started with Bluecrest. And what was the nature of the relationship back then? Well, she was launching her new fund, Blue Trend, under the auspice of Bluecrest. And We had a relationship with that company before, and we were really building that complete portfolio program. And the CTA strategy was something that we were paying attention to. So when you did that work then, and then I suppose again, when she launched Systematica, what are the qualities about her that led you to say, Leda's the person, the leader in this space that we want to back and not somebody else? Leda, getting to know her, going through interviews and seeing her at their office in Montreal, three attributes that really struck me. Brains, humility, and hard work. That lady is very authentic. She's very creative. I thought she was bringing something special for that space specifically, something that was going to allow her to thrive in markets. When you think about the team around her and a strategy like that, what are the important factors? Well, first of all, it's a quantitative strategy. So you need to hired the right skill. So you and me could probably not work there, but for sure, it's all about the quality of the people working, how technical they are in their own field from physics to mathematics, but also their pedigree, their background, their intellectual integrity as to how they model, how they validate what they build. So For us, we spent a lot of time there, and clearly the strategy is much more technical than understanding a more fundamental strategy. But there were things even back then, and we had a few people working with me, where we could say that this shop was really a strong shop in terms of investment process. How do you figure out how to test that level of technical capability between latest team and another team when we know going in that all of their technical knowledge is going to be so much higher than ours as allocators. We've built over the years this playbook, if you like, on how to evaluate quantitative managers. So it goes a lot to their process and how they validate, how they measure, how they work with data, because data is a big, big item here. So getting the data, cleaning the data, what's that process? 
How are they validating models in sample, out of sample? These are all of the things that we were testing. It's not only a mechanical checklist here. You have to go into these meetings at their office, meet their chief technology officer and meet their research groups, see how they interact together. And then you also have the elements of, are they employees or are they partners? Are they part of that team? Are they building something together? So we kind of validate all of this. And at the end, there's a little je ne sais quoi that makes it where we decide to go with that manager. And obviously there's track record and things like that, that you need to validate. That strategy actually is for us, it's always to be able to validate when they lost money, when they made money, what were the peers doing at that time? What were the markets doing at that time? What was their reaction? So there's a lot of work that goes into doing all of this. So one last question I want to ask you before we kick off the conversation, which is how do you think about sizing a position in a strategy like that in your portfolio? If you want to manage a portfolio that's more sensible to tail risk, obviously you'll put less of these types of strategies. That strategy has a a positive gamma. That strategy thrives in more volatile markets. And we've seen it in the past for many, many years now. So it's all about how you want to manage that downside volatility. And as we know, markets go up and markets are generally stable. So it's that mix where you decide to put a little more of that spice versus another one so that you you reach to an expected return. For us, it became very important to calibrate well here because we have an overlay program. It's not a funded program. So we use our balance sheet to invest in hedge funds. So we need to make sure that this is calibrated well enough so that when markets are hostile, we're not losing too much money out of the program. So this is where that strategy plays a very specific role. Great. Mario, once again, thanks so much. Thanks, Dad. Leila, it is good to see you. Let's start with a bit of background. Tell us a bit about you growing up. Was there something that predestined you to work in finance? Tell us about that moment that you had. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Finance and leadership. Oh, my goodness. I think the answer is no on both counts. I grew up in Brazil and I did my first degree in Brazil in engineering. And then I came to the UK to do a postgraduate in engineering, to do a a PhD. my, My passion and my talent was very much towards science and mathematics and engineering. And finance was really, if you think about what engineers do, engineers are the guys who want to solve the problems that people have, right? And, and so they yes. often look around. In a university, you kind of sense that difference. They're, they are pure mathematicians, they are physicists. And then that, the, the engineers, the engineers are the guys who really want to apply what they know and their energy. And so I think my originally my passion was for science and mathematics and the numerical methods. And then I found myself completing a PhD and starting an academic career in London, where the derivatives world was sort of exploding. The whole London in the 90s was a big center for for derivatives development. And of course, then derivatives required a bit more modeling and more coding and more mathematical expertise. And so 
I guess it was the engineer in me when I looked to do something other than an academic career, which, you know, it was great. And I, I was very, very grateful for the opportunities I was offered. I was actually a lecturer at Imperial College for a few years. But, you know, in seeking to do something more commercial, if you were in London at that time and your thing was mathematics and coding, you could not ignore the call from the financial side. That's how the finance came into it. So you came into the world of finance in the early 2000s. How does it feel to be starting out with very few women in our industry? Was there any specific environment in those days? Can you describe a little bit for us, like 20, 25 years ago, how it was? It was no change from what I had experienced all my life in the sense that in my year in the mechanical engineering department where I was, I was probably the only woman anyway. And then at Imperial College, where I was a lecturer for just over three years, I was the only female lecturer, female lecturing position. I was the only female member of academic staff. And so from Imperial College, I went to JP Morgan. That was my first job. It was 1993. And as I say, I was a derivative squad then. It wasn't until 2000, as you point out, that I moved to the investment side. But I was an investment banker in J.P. Morgan for a long time. There were more women in J.P. Morgan than what I had experienced in my academic life. And so that was refreshing. Now, how did that get reflected in my experience? I cannot say that I personally feel like I suffered with prejudice or I had opportunities uh, denied or taken away from me. I'm a pretty determined person and I seek to wake up in the morning, deliver a good day's work. And so some of my friends say to me, later the minority effect and the prejudice was always there. It's just that you never saw it. I've reflected on that statement over the years. Perhaps they're right. Perhaps the way to deal with these things is to just be obstinate enough that nobody's going to stop me. Let me get on with it, you know. And, and so my experience was by and large very positive. And it wasn't unique to finance. It came from being in engineering and being in mathematics and then being in academia in an engineering department. And so, if anything, J.P. Morgan had more women than my previous life. And as I say, my experience is positive. I know that you're probably going to ask, why don't we find more women in finance, right? And I reflect on that a lot as well, because, of course, we run an organization. We employ over 100 people here, very few women on the investment side, and they don't even turn up to interview. Of course, I've reflected on this. So why are there not too many women in finance, in investment management? to quote one sector. I think three factors there. One is that there is a, a bias against mathematics for some reason. So women don't tend to go for mathematics quite so much. Then I yeah. think there is a perception that working the markets, you work in financial markets, that is a less flexible job proposition. And there's probably some truth in that. Because yeah. if you are responsible for investments, markets don't stop. You can't just say, oh, I'll do this work at 10 p.m. when I, I'm done with my problems or whatever flexibility I need. The markets don't wait for you. So a bias against mathematics, 
a perceived and perhaps somewhat real lack of flexibility in the job. And then thirdly, I think a perception that investment management jobs are about risk taking. A female colleague of mine once said, it'd be much better if our jobs were described as capital commitment as opposed to risk taking because risk taking has some negative connotation to it. Do you want to take risks for a living? It's like, not really, you know, I just want to <laughs> So, and so I think these three things conspire to not make it an attractive proposition. And I, when I see that women don't turn up to interview here, I kind of think you can't fill the positions based on quotas. So you need to go upstream from the problem and yeah. encourage more women to get qualified. So I actually participated, I help with all I can, a program called Math for Girls, which is run yeah, by 100 yes. Women in Finance. And, and they visit schools and they talk about, they try to encourage, demystify careers in mathematics. That's great. I heard about that initiative. This is great work. It's interesting. I give a lecture to my alma mater every summer, the master's of finance degree, and there's about 25 students every year. And I've been doing this for more than 10 years now, and there's only about two or three women every year. And I always ask the question, right? But it's all about rebuilding the pipeline and our industry has been on the wrong side of history, I would say, and we need to work at it, I guess, for the years to come. In 2015, you made the decision to stand on your own feet. You started Systematica. What was the goal, the motivation back then? Why did you decide to have your name on the door and be like a full-time entrepreneur? Yeah, so, so Systematica was actually, it was in fact my third startup. <laughs> in one of these uh, conversations, in fact, it was a forum organized by a group of women. Somebody asked me, do you think uh, preference for the high-risk startup is something that goes with the opportunity or goes with the person? In other words, do you find certain people that are always in the mood for doing that, taking that kind of risk? Or do you think that anybody can take it so long as the opportunity is attractive enough? <laughs> I remember saying, well, I am definitely a data point for the latter because it's like I'm a serial. <laughs> it's my yeah. So as a systematical was the third startup and the first one was a spectacular failure. Bluecrest then was a much stronger outcome. And so then if you think about the context at the time, Bluecrest was leaning towards becoming a family office for the founding partner. And we had this great business on the systematic side of Bluecrest, which I felt it was a very worthwhile business. It was a good proper service to the clients. It's a fantastic place where people can develop their careers and feel useful and feel engaged. I remember at the time, somebody from a bank asked me, oh, is that a dream come true for you to have your name above the door? And I sort of stopped and thought, no, I never thought about having my name on any door. <laughs> you know, I just, honestly, I just feel like, gosh, what are we going to do? We must keep this business going. There's so much road ahead and, and there's a good contribution to make. So it's very honestly just a desire to to be productive, to create something good. I do take a lot of responsibility for the running of the group. You kind of see leaders, if you're put in a position of leadership, you better take it on with the full responsibility that it brings, you know? So I don't ignore conflict. I don't 
run away from difficult conversations. I, in fact, I have this motto in the morning, you know, what are the difficult topics of the day? Let me do them first, right? <laughs> if I know I have some tough conversations to have, I'll make a point of not allowing myself to reply to emails and do all the things that you do before I do the hard things of the day. Your job is to do the hard things, woman, get on with it, you know? You're just giving me a, a new thing to add to my routine. No, you're right. <laughs> Taking care of the hard stuff to start your day. Very interesting. Now, let's talk a bit about the strategy, your investment philosophy. The trend following strategy goes way back to the early 70s. Now, for the listeners who may not be familiar with your strategy, please describe how it works and the reason it has been successful over the years. Now, why do investors seek to invest in a systematic trend-following strategy? So trend-following is an interesting segment in its own right. Uh, we, as a group of people, we do systematic strategies, so we do various different styles. But you're, of course, absolutely right that we started our collective career in trend-following. And what is the power of trend-following? So trend-following is this very generic strategy. Let me take a step back. So if you're building a strategy, what are the two basic steps? You've got to have some form of signal. You've got to decide which securities to buy, which securities to sell. So that's signal. And then you have to size your positions. Okay, if I've now decided that these things are good for buying and these things are good for selling or these other things I don't want to touch, then now how much shall I buy? How much shall I sell? So building a portfolio, how much of it in proportion, right? So trend following is about extracting the signal from the time series of prices. So you look at the time series of prices, if you think of a price chart, you try to determine whether that price action is in a trend or not, and if that trend is up or down. And it's simple as that. So the assumption is there's a bit of forecasting power in the trend signal. All right, so then if I'm going to build a trend following strategy, what do I do? Well, I I pick a number of markets that I think will compose a good offering. And I will then look at the price data on all these markets. And I'm going to compute a trend following signal or a trend signal on each one of these markets. That trend signal will tell me which ones I want to buy. And in proportion, right, it'll tell me, oh, this is a really strong buy signal. This is a weak buy signal. And then I construct a portfolio. And so back to your question, why would people want this kind of strategy? Sounds very simple, right? You know, well, yeah. price action and you measure the trend or whatever. Well, as it turns out, this type of strategy performs remarkably well at times of market stress. If you are a large allocator, a large pension fund or an endowment, you're going to deploy your money, you need to invest your money. You might have illiquid investments, but if you have liquid investments, then the stock market is, of course, one big place where you're going to have to go because the stock market is the barometer of economic activity and wealth creation worldwide. Right? So I need to buy stocks. Okay. So I'm sitting on a pile of stocks. Well, what can go wrong? In the long term, stocks should deliver for you. Problem with stocks is that they have high volatility and they are subject to a lot of drawdown. Stocks have what we call negative skewness, right? So the moves down are larger than the little moves up. And so it's so, okay. So, right, I've got to have a pile of stocks. What else can I do to improve this? Well, if you can mitigate that drawdown of the stocks, that is superb because then you've got your baseline 
meal, if you like, in the stocks, and then you put a bit of sauce with this drawdown mitigation. And, and trend following, as it comes to be clear, is a, a very respectable contender for the class of drawdown mitigators. There's other things you can do. You can buy options or you can rely on government bonds to mitigate a drawdown or you can rely on credit. But all of these things, not that guaranteed. And in the case of options, a very costly strategy to run because you pay option premium, it goes away. And if that stock market doesn't have any stress, then your money's gone. And so people rather like the idea of putting a strategy in the portfolio that mitigates the equity drawdown. And at the same time, that strategy in itself has positive expectation of return. So this is a bit like the insurance policy that I get paid to hold because yes. the thing will have positive expectation of return. And yet when the rubbish hits the fan, I expect it to help my portfolio. And so that is why people like trend following. It's not a particularly pleasant ride. The sharp ratio is not very high. So you need to size it appropriately and you need to trust it and trust your manager to get on with it, to live the discipline. But as a CTP showed back in the day, it was a good decision and it added a lot to the portfolio. It added a lot, for example, in 2008, where equity suffered a lot. So if you had a 10 or a 20% allocation to a good trend follower in 2008 that really helped you draw down. I remember also in 2008, people have in mind the movements in equities and in bonds, but also people forget about the large moves that we had in commodities like oil, for example. Oh, gotcha. The first part of 2008, we had this long uptrend on oil, and then we had the turnaround in, in the summer, and then oil collapsed during And if I remember well, because we had many CTAs back in the days, this was a big PNL contributor as well for the strategy. So it was indeed. It was indeed. In fact, at the yeah. time, the oil price movement was a little bit of a case study for us, where we showed because because okay, so if you think about the strategy that I've described, which is oh, you know, measure the trend and then buy the things that are trending up, sell the things that are trending down. This all goes very well while it's trending, right? The problem is the reversal. You can tell that just from this conversation. And uh, we have a few techniques within our models to, to mitigate and to manage the reversal. And uh, I remember the oil prices had a very sharp reversal in the summer of 2008, and we lost money, but we mitigated that loss. And I remember building a slide to exactly show what had happened to our position. So we started cutting the long positions before the reversal in that case. So it was an interesting case. But, but then you could also say, why should trend following mitigate equity drawdowns? And why? That's the million dollar question, right? Because you can't prove it, you can't prove why, but you can kind of infer that it's the discipline yeah. of the trading plus the level of the diversification of the strategy that really confers the properties that the strategy has. Yeah, it removes the biases that many investors might have from greed to fear. I think the strategy is very agnostic to exactly. trends exactly. as long as there's price action, as long as there's decent liquidity as well. So, what one example? So, I was sitting in Bluecrest, right, at the time in 2008, and Bluecrest had this about half of the assets on the discretionary side, half the assets on the systematic side. My colleagues on the discretionary side, felt even more negative about the world than us 
and yet they were not short. And so hmm. human beings, I think on average, tend to take risk off if they fear. Whereas if you've got a systematic strategy, you have a good chance of carrying on with your investment process and just saying, no, no, the signal says I should short. Yeah, it's not great to short the stock market. You want everybody to do well and stocks to go up, but but if it's going down, then you short it. And that yeah. discipline is very hard to argue emotionally. Perhaps a higher level macro type of question. What's your view of the world and how has it changed in the last year? And how is this influencing how you think about your strategy? I don't have a simple numerical answer to offer to that. Like, you know, people say, oh, the regime has changed. Well, what is the regime? Do you have a variable that we can measure? I think there are a few things that you can say that you see now that you didn't used to see then. So, for example, since the financial crisis, if you pick up the securities, the, the generic macro securities, the, the 100 or 150 liquid futures markets, and if you do a bit of principal component analysis on them, the first principal component looks like a risk-on, risk-off move. That phrase is kind of well-known, right? Oh, it's a risk-on day. Oh, you know, that yeah. equities are going up. It's a risk-off day. You know, that equities are going up. I don't remember when I joined JP Morgan in 93 and through the 90s ever hearing that expression, risk-on, risk-off. I don't think that existed. Right? So I suspect that is a, a new trend, perhaps fueled by market participation broadening. And so people that are more attuned to the news rather than the fundamentals. And so then, oh my goodness, it's a, it's a risk of day. Take risk off, take risk off. And so that is one difference. Another difference that we notice is we can, markets have gone very electronic. And so it's possible with good techniques to trade large positions without revealing your footprint. And that's great. So people sometimes say, oh, you know, people are moving the market, CTAs are moving. No, they're not. And then you can kind of look at the data and, and argue that. But, you know, apart from these odd realizations, I, as a broad answer, I think the job is as difficult now as it's always been. There's so much randomness in markets. Yeah. If you think about being an engineer, I don't know, working for BMW, building cars, if you... You deploy better materials and you do good techniques, good design. Your car will come out better. In finance, there's just so much randomness in markets, right? So you're always fighting with this, the randomness of the market itself. That is very hard. That's for sure. Now, tell me a bit about how you think of expected return for your strategy. What is a good year for you when you think about your strategy? So a good year for us is a year when the clients are happy, right? How do we think about expectation of return? First of all, there's the realization that when you design and implement an investment strategy, we feel able to control the risk delivered much more tightly than we can control the expectation of return or the realized return. Yes. So it's like how much fuel you put in the engine, which is the volatility that you target. Whether you're going to get the return or not, you're relying on sometimes a long period of time to see that long-term expectation of return come to fruition. Right? So first comment is we control the vol delivered. We control the risk target rather than the expectation of return. Second comment is 
whichever way we slice and dice the data, correlations are always more persistent than returns. So the correlation profile between strategies and between markets is something that is more likely to stay the course than yeah. the actual returns. Okay, so now what does that point to? Well, if you control the vol and you know the correlation is more persistent than returns, then your portfolio construction and your strategy construction should rely more on diversification than on target return. And that is a principle that we live our investment lives by over here, you know, just that diversification is for certain. Returns, they are forecast. They hopefully realize over the long term, but it's very hard. So, so in answer to your question, how do we look at expected returns of our strategies? Expected returns are a long-term character, really, a long-term attribute. And I'm sorry, we need to be patient. And diversification always pays off. Diversification is one of the pillars of the things that we do. And, and I mean, you don't have to go far to find examples of people neglecting that so badly. So diversification is for certain. Returns are forecast. I'd say that that is the principle as to how we look at expectations of return. I like the way you're framing this. That actually debunks a lot of the myths about hedge funds, but also specifically like for quant managers. People forget how managers of your strategy are risk manager to start with. So they're good risk manager. I like the way you're framing this. I've been reading a few books in the last year. The first one from Head Door, A Man for All Markets, and the second by Greg Zuckerman, The Man Who Solved the Markets, which depicts the rise and evolution of the medallion fund with Jim Simon's renaissance. In both these books, it is fascinating to see the hebs and flows of quantitative strategies over the last 50 years and how managers have had to adapt in order to evolve. Now, quant strategies have had some challenges in the recent years with the arrivals of AI, big data, and lots of competition. How has this changed your sector and how do you address these changing winds? The winds of change that, that you refer to, they are all tailwinds for us, you know, they help. So first of all, this whole articulation of the field of data science, that's fantastic, right? You can, you can walk up to a campus in a university and you can talk about how what we do is data science, investment management. And I attended a conference in Stanford a while ago and I remember there were some other speakers from other industries, telecoms and pharma, and the conference was about data science and the speakers stood up to say how they were using data science to enhance their performance. And I kind of stood up and said, well, our business is data science. There's no enhancement function here. This is what we do. We look at data to make investment decisions. And so that has been a positive thing. There's more interest in the discipline as a whole. There's more tools. There's a specialization of mathematical techniques for data analysis. There's a whole number of what we call alternative data sets. So specialized data sets, imagery, clicks on a web interface or credit card data. So there's a whole number of small companies 
appearing everywhere, whose job it is to repackage and to do a first round processing of these alternative data sets and try to monetize them. So that has been a very positive thing. Another positive aspect of this AI wave is that people have become more comfortable with algorithmic approaches to things. They kind of know that you want to go to a place and you don't know what the traffic is going to be good or bad. It's a good thing to look at your app and, and try to work out what the data is saying, right? Yes. And so I remember hearing the phrase data-driven decision-making. And I kind of said to myself, data-driven decision, is there any other kind? And I kind of thought, <laughs> Leda, how stupid can it be? Of course, there's another kind. Most people make decisions based on emotions. Most people do not make their decisions based on data. So people have become more aware that using data to make your decisions is on average a positive thing. It's a good thing. And so these are good things. So, so what, what have we done in response? We take advantage of that to kind of publicize the careers and the effort and the beliefs that we have. We have also very openly looked into new techniques, using them, incorporating them in what we do, a bit of machine learning here and there. Some bits of certain algorithms lend themselves to some fancier techniques. So we've done that too. Just this morning, I was having a meeting here about how do we enlarge our capability to process 50 to 100 new data sets per year? Because another thing that we seem to have learned is that some of these alternative quirky data sets, they're forecasting ability has a bit of decay. So they forecast for a while and then they become worthless. And so as a firm, we need to speed up the processing and implementation of the alpha sources that rely on these data sets. And we are making active changes to the way that we look at technology and the way that we connect technology for the research to try to speed things up. We're seeing the emergence of many new markets, asset classes around the world, so from between Asia, China, new types of commodities, Bitcoin. How promising are these areas for your strategy? China is an interesting topic in its own right, right? We, Systematica, we've got a bit of history now, so we are in year seven of the operation. And I, I think looking back at how we have done and how we have fared in the various initiatives we've undertaken, I think it's fair to say that we do okay dealing with complexity. So we've done quite a lot of work in what the industry refers to as alternative markets. Alternative markets are markets that are either nascent or a bit more difficult to trade or the data is a bit more difficult to obtain. And we are quite active in these markets. And I say that we've done it successfully because we have done it, we have some offerings that have grown in those areas, but also we have been able to deal with that complexity without a huge increase in staff numbers. So that kind of tells me that we are equipping ourselves with the right technology and the right approach, because it's not like every time we deal with a new alternative market, we have to hire another person. So, so given the realization that we are okay at alternative markets, that seems to be a competitive strength of ours. The next thought was, China is the ultimate alternative market, isn't it? And can't even read what they write. So time zone is difficult, the legislation is difficult, the regulatory environment is difficult. At the same time, it is an enormous economic force in the world. And so a minute ago, we were talking about how 
large allocators, large pension funds have to have a big chunk of their portfolios in stocks. But if you have a lot of stocks, I'll bet with you, you are sitting in an investment committee discussing how much China you should have. And so we've really made a push into China. We've started our Shanghai office. And so China is, I think, a no-brainer. And then there's a very positive aspect of investing in China, which is uh, engaging with China. China needs the West to prosper and in order to grow further. And if the West engages constructively with China. So for example, we do equity work in China on an ESG basis. So our offering in equities China is a naturally ESG focused offering because we kind of feel, gosh, you know, if you can give the message to the CEOs of Chinese companies that they need to do business sustainably, that's very powerful. That's very interesting. I was going to ask you about ESG more than just the buzzword. In recent years, we've seen ESG factors that are becoming more and more crucial for all investors. I was curious to, outside of what you're doing in China, how is this put into your processes and how is it evolving over the years? I've become a big supporter and a big believer in the role that our industry can play in ESG. Sometimes I joke around with the guy that if you're really worried about sustainability, what are you going to do? Are you going to donate to a charity? Are you going to go on a protest march? How about you join the investment management industry? Because, you know, there's about 70, 80 trillion dollars of professionally managed assets worldwide. If our industry puts its foot down, and demand sustainability from businesses. There is just no way businesses are not going to respond. Of course, every CEO will respond. And so I do think that the way to make a difference is that in another case that I often quote, so there's this case of this man called Mark McVeigh, an Australian, a young guy, he's uh, brought a claim against the pension fund for not investing his pension money with enough regard for the future of the world and, and in his future. And actually they settled out of court. So it's not only a great way to promote sustainability, to sort of be the investor that says, sorry, but you've got to do business in a sustainable way. Otherwise I can't invest my money in your company. But it's also a responsibility for the longevity of the investment. You know, if you're running a pension fund, decades of return. And, and so we started back in the day, I mean, right off, from the spin-off or even a bit before, we were already implementing a number of exclusions in all the portfolios that we run. But then that evolved into incorporating ESG scoring in the construction of the portfolios. And so there's ESG scoring, there's carbon emissions. Now, just this morning, we were discussing a number of other initiatives on the ESG front concerning controversies, concerning governance, and as I say, doing ESG in the developed world is a big enough challenge because the data needs to be cleaned up. It's often it's self-reported data. Therefore, it doesn't experience that much scrutiny or criticism. But doing it in China, you double up the challenge. Sourcing the data is hard, expressing it, cleaning it up. But we're doing it anyway. So I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. I wish more people in the industry would pick it up and run with it. And as I say, as an industry, we can really change things here, right? You just think about the pressure 
that has been put on companies that have hit the press on the way they do business and the way they treat their employees or whatever business practices they embrace and how quickly CEOs respond to that. As you know, CDPQ has been engaged in various initiatives and I'm really glad to hear you talk about how important it is for us. It's something that we spend a lot of time across all asset classes. Just to go back a bit on your company, and I'm curious, what makes a great chief investment officer or a CEO in a quantitative shop? I will tell you what I don't think I need very much more of is to be the best technical person around. Because as I said to you in the beginning of this conversation, you know, a lot of them are so much smarter than me. So what makes a good CEO? I think you need to look further than other people. Everybody else has the privilege or the treat of being able to look ahead a day's work or a week's work. I need to look at a year horizon, a five-year horizon. So you've got to retain that, right? You've got to be the five-year person because everybody else is very content celebrating a good week's work. And if all these weeks line up in the wrong five-year direction, (laughs) you're in trouble. So it's the long-term view. I also often say that in the list of opportunities that present themselves to an organization in business, the no's of the organization need to be said at the senior level. And junior people are never going to say no. If you ask them to do something, they'll try to do it. They'll try their best. They, In general, people think it's a good thing to be a can-do person, right? We'll try. And to try to do everything is not a good strategy. So, so I often say, look, the no's of the organization need to be said at the high level. So I see my job as having the very long-term vision, the, the keeper of the long-term plan. I also see myself as the one that takes away the pain when we have to say no, because, you know, she said no. So she said we're not doing it. So that's okay. We're not doing it. <laughs> as opposed to to leave it to the organization to not be able to accomplish something. And then when you are in a position of leadership, whether you, you're qualified or not, that position in itself grants you power, right? You've got to use it humbly and responsibly. Even, for example, if I think there is a problem in the organization or there's a problem with a staff member or a problem with a team, even the way I ask questions can shape the answer. So you've got to be tactful and clever about these things. You've got to listen, listen, make up your mind. And, you know, if you walk up to somebody and if you ask the question the wrong way, you're going to get the answer that you thought you were going to get. And so to deal with the assignment with great respect and great responsibility, right? Yeah. There's no other way. What would you say are your biggest challenges as the CEO of Systematica in today's world? Nowadays, I don't have an answer to that, a very clear answer. What keeps me awake at night is a cyber attack, okay? I'm petrified. We, over here, we spend so much effort in tightening up cybersecurity of our firm educating everybody on cybersecurity. We have a monthly meeting of the firm tomorrow. It's the first Thursday of each calendar month. We have a monthly meeting. Sure enough, there's going to be a case study because, you know, there was an attempted attack here a couple of weeks ago. Nobody fell for it, but it was a very sophisticated attack. So cyber attacks really worry me. Then if you think more like a cyber attack is an external threat, 
If you think more organically, I worry about succession. I've been CEO of the firm since the beginning. We are now year seven. I am actively discussing succession planning with my colleagues, with the board. So that is another big challenge for me. But that one is organic. It's not an external threat. It's organic, but you're aware of it, which is refreshing because I think that we'll see a big shift in succession, whether it's in public or private markets, hedge funds over the next five, 10 years, where that generation is now moving into another cycle. So very interesting. I was going to ask you on starting a quant shop in 2021. So we've seen the universe of quant managers going through a period of consolidation as many young talent managers are deciding to join a large platform such as Citadel, Cubist, WorldQuant. What would be the advice that the Leta Braga of 2021 give to the Leta Braga of a year 2000 in regard to an entrepreneurial path? The platform approach is naturally, from what I gather in the industry, is naturally a more siloed approach, right? Is the small team that wants to do their own thing and keep their own intellectual property and not share with anybody else. We live in a world where the risk-free rate is zero, sometimes negative. The investment problem is perhaps bigger than ever with an aging population in most developed economies. So pension funds need efficient investment. They need low fees. How do you achieve low fees and a good investment process? It's a scalable process. There's no other way. If you're going to do something in a scalable way, you don't want to have John, Mary, Paul, and, and Claude, each one doing a different thing and each one, you know, no, you want them to get in a room, go through the pain of achieving some consensus and deploying the best thing possible. So the platform thing is fundamentally different from the way that we run our team here. We run our team on a much more collaborative framework where we really try to train up people and to share knowledge. Yeah, we don't go off and equip every person in the research team with all the most confidential notes. We don't do that, but people have access to knowledge and they are trained up to achieve the best that we can. So, So the platform business model is not a direct threat to us in the sense that they are different and time will tell which business model You think about the intellectual property that we've developed here over the years. That intellectual property, that body of work, is the reason why I can easily step away and somebody else can succeed because they can pick that up and that thing has a life of its own now. There's a coach, there's a body of IP, and that thing can carry on. If I had been the Leda Braga and and David Kitson show running $100 million, that would never happen, right? So we will see where that goes. In terms of entrepreneurial advice, oh my goodness, the Leda Braga of 2021, just tell the Leda Braga of 2000 that there's a lot of hard years ahead, you know, (laughs) they always come and they're always hard. I think resilience is perhaps the most relied upon attribute of the job of the entrepreneur. And this is probably why the man in the street is not an entrepreneur, right? The man in the street likes to do a good job every day, get paid and feel a sense of accomplishment. And when you are an entrepreneur, many times you do all the right things, you work super hard and things just don't work out. And being able to survive that, yeah, it's just very hard. That is very good. 
you and I have both been doing some work with the Standard Board for Alternative Investment. Can you take a few minutes to tell me about the reason you've joined and, and the work that we do? The SBAI is so unique. It puts together the managers and the allocators around the same table. And these are people that whose relationship has some natural elements of tension. The allocators, they want better returns, lower fees. The managers want support for the tough periods and the managers see all the randomness that they have to deal with and all the competition in the market. And the SBAI then provides a forum for a constructive set of practices. And that's fantastic, yeah. right? What industry would want that? Imagine, I don't think of another industry where that exists. If you think about it, the car industry has their own lobbying people and the regulators of the car side, the oil industry. But I mean, you don't necessarily put two groups that have common goals, but in the medium term, potentially tense conflicting interests and gets them to have a really constructive dialogue and sort things out. That is fantastic. And then, as you know, the quality of the work, the quality of the, the suggestions and the materials and the protocols that come out of the SBAI is outstanding. It's really outstanding. So that's an easy one. It's just a great organization. No, you're right. And it's well said. And it's sort of that growing ecosystem, that flywheel effect that keeps on going, which to me is just amazing. It's been a real treat actually to be with you on, on that board now for several years now. So thank you. So the closing questions, my favorite part, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? The favorite activity for me is fitness in general. I try to exercise. With age comes the realization that the only thing you can do is to stay fit. And I take great pleasure of uh, exercising, cycling. There are other fitness-related activities that I used to do more of in the past that have become a bit more difficult to do. For example, I love scuba diving. I've done a little bit of rock climbing, and I like that as well, but a bit more specialized. In Systematica, the guys have come up with a, an initiative that they call System Action. And so they have group activities of all sorts. Look, eight of them took part in the Tour de France. They took part in the etap where they admit amateur cyclists, right? So they, nice. they are really committed athletes here. And so the system action is a thing here. <laughs> what is your most important daily habit? Oh, it's somewhere between this idea of exercising and keeping fit, but also this habit of doing the hard things first, you know. We all want to be busy and yeah. have a good day. Doing whatever what we're doing, it doesn't have to be work, but just tackling the difficult things head on and just not running away from them. And often, once you've tackled them, they will feel a lot easier than you thought. Like, you know, the emotional cloud that you build around the things that you think are hard to do is often a bit out of proportion, isn't it? I'm taking that one on, that's for sure, Leda. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? I think cynicism. I had a colleague who used to be always very sarcastic in his comments, very cynical about all the things that we're trying to do. And once it came appraisal time and I said to him, how about you write me two paragraphs on how cynicism and leadership interact? <laughs> <laughs> what do you achieve with 
sarcasm, cynicism, and pessimism. I don't know, maybe call me naive, but what do you achieve? So yeah, we all have a moderate amount of it in our personal portfolio. And a, a small amount of everything in your portfolio, we've talked about diversifications, that's a good thing. But it's not something that I think is productive, doesn't achieve much, and so there you go. Yeah, negative energy. I agree with you on that. What is your biggest investment pet peeve? Well, for the systematic trader, it's overfitting. It's just looking at all the data that you know is filled with randomness and coming out and say, oh, this is going to be a brilliant strategy and it's going to perform right. (laughs) So overfitting to the data and therefore setting yourself the wrong expectations. That is the biggest sin. What is your favorite book? Probably Stumbling on Happiness. So Stumbling on Happiness is written by a man called Daniel Gilbert, and he's a Harvard professor. And uh, Stumbling on Happiness talks about the objective of life at the top level, like top node of the tree of possibilities is to be happy. So like, yeah. you know, you lift them. So how do you make decisions in your life under this utility function of being happy and and he sort of analyzes all the cognitive biases that we all have when we make decisions about our lives and basically the book is sort of saying that you know you sort of stumble on happiness really because your decision making process is not very good i guess i read this book many years ago and i've given it to many people since and now that i've made a, a bit of a career as a systematic trader i think it's all related isn't it it's like uh, making decisions filled with emotion <laughs> <laughs> and how that can really backfire i suppose that's what the book is saying what is the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it career wise in the running of the various strategies that we have run over the years the mistakes that i have made which i regret have almost all of them probably being related to unwinding strategies in the drawdown. Then you say, okay, what is the mistake then? Is it because you lost confidence and unwound in the drawdown? I guess, no, the mistake is actually upstream from there where you were probably not running the risk that you should have. Because if you're running the right amount of risk, you can stomach the drawdown. I guess as a generalization, that is probably the interventions that I would have regretted. And the last one, what teaching from your parents most stayed with you? The expectation was always that that we would all do a very good job no matter what we did. That was always the expectation. And there was ever any push on this career or that career or... So just an expectation that if you're doing something, really try to do a good job. My mother would say, it doesn't matter if you're going to clean the streets. Just clean that street so that it's perfectly clean. And I guess that is what has stayed with me. That the idea that you can get satisfaction from just about anything through excellence if you do a very good job. Well, Leda, this interview will go in my jar of awesome. This was terrific. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed my time. So thank you so much. Thank you for the uh, the question. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.